This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 241. And the quote of the day is, it's always the small pieces of the puzzle that make up the big picture. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And this session is going to be a recap of every or the top 10 interviews that I did in 2016. And if you have received any value from those the interviews in 2017 or any interview that I've done, any of the 240 interviews, please do me a favor. Go to drummersresource.com forward slash support. And that is a way for you to contribute to the podcast on a monthly basis, whether it be a dollar a month, $2 a month, $3 a month, $10 a month, as much as you would like. And every bit helps. So if it's a dollar, that helps. If it's $2, that helps. If it's $3, that helps. And also, there are some great prizes and some great perks that go along with that as well. So check it out at drummersresource.com forward slash support. Now, the first, we're going to go backwards. So we're going to start at number 10 and we're going to go backwards all the way to the number one. And this is based on downloads. So that's the the best way for me to gauge what the top 10 downloads were or the top 10 uh, uh, sessions or, or interviews. And so it's based on downloads. So it's not just my personal opinion. Uh, it's based on what you, the audience, has listened to. And every single one of these is a nugget that I pulled out of each one of the sessions that I thought was really, really important or was really informative or just a good nugget for you to hear. And then also, if you go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 241, all of these will be linked on there. So you can you can check out all of these individual podcasts. If you haven't heard each one of these sessions, you can listen to them in their entirety. So let's start with number 10, which is session 185 with Thomas Lang. And he talks about how to practice and really the the difference between someone who practices effectively and someone who practices ineffectively. He talks about the 10,000 hour rule, which is the idea that you can, it it takes 10,000 hours to master something. So this is from, from someone who has a very strict practice regimen and someone who knows a lot about practice. And I really appreciate his approach on practice, uh, Thomas is definitely the guy you want to check out. So this is around the 1235 mark, and let's get into it with Thomas Lang. I was very lucky that my first teacher, and I started at a very young age. I started at around five. Actually, it was four. Just just before I turned five, I started. Um, My first teacher taught me how to practice before he taught me how to play. Before he did any actual technical lessons with me or anything, he uh, sort of drilled me and instructed me very thoroughly on what it means to practice, what the practice rules are, uh, how you um, learn to focus and concentrate for long periods of time, um, why we practice, how to set goals, how to achieve goals, and so on and so so forth. So he, he taught me a method of practicing uh, on on day one. And for the first like seven or eight weeks of my lessons with him, when I was a very, you know, young uh, boy, he taught me about 
methodical approach about making plans, about sticking to the plan, about uh, goal setting, etc. And that really made a huge difference in my uh, practicing uh, routine, in my practicing life. And it very much affected my efficiency, not only in my practice life, but also in my playing and working career. And um, I'm still very grateful to his um, teaching and instructions at the time. It made a huge difference in my life overall. And um, I think it saved me at least at least 50% of, of practice time compared to other musicians, um, you know, and I've, I've, I've shared rehearsal rooms with other musicians many times for months or even years. And I know how other people uh, practice, not only drummers, but also other uh, musicians. And I can see how, you know, their approach to practicing lacks in efficiency uh, is really not very methodical, is often very random and confused, and uh, and they stumble upon things by uh, coincidence usually uh, or by luck, and rather than actually plan ahead and, and, uh, and have a really methodical approach to practicing. So that's, um, that's my background on that, you know? So can, can we unpack that a little bit? Because I'd love to, I'd love to hear sort of how how people practice incorrectly or inefficiently versus the way that you practice and you know like maybe a specific example of of uh of something that people can take away and bring into their practice room okay well um again one of the the biggest problems is that a lot of other musicians or, or drummers practice without a plan you know and mm -hmm. And one of the most important things in life, not only in practicing, is to have a plan and and plan your not only the, your daily routines, but plan ahead, you know, months, years in advance, knowing what you're going to be practicing in November this year, you know, um, or knowing how long it takes, you know, exactly to develop an, a new idea from zero to being able to apply it in your playing. You know, having knowledge about your behavior, your level of, of focus and concentration, how long you can practice per day, blah, 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 blah. All this affects your efficiency in practicing and uh, time management and, and productivity. And a lot of musicians never think or worry about those things. And they have absolutely no plan. They pick up a guitar and start noodling. And maybe they'll find a lick that they... Um, that they um, need to work on, or maybe they just play along with a song and discover a chord they don't know and kind of then take it from there, you know, rather than mm -hmm. having a very concrete idea of what they're going to be practicing that day, you know? Right. So having a plan is, is a big thing, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. having a plan uh, and having a daily plan and a daily routine uh, makes a huge difference. Um, another thing that, um, is important is is knowing practice rules and sticking to the rules R rules like you know never play when you practice or never practice when you play or practice every day or practice like you play etc i mean there's there's literally dozens actually there's hundreds of rules and i have a little book um, that um from the first few years of my my uh, practicing with that particular teacher we were talking about earlier mm -hmm. and um and it's full of these very short very concise and and 
uh, you know, important little practice rules. Right. And, um, and one thing that I always did was stick to those rules. Like, you know, don't stop an exercise until it's done. Never interrupt an exercise. Like we fix mistakes as they're happening. Don't stop playing when you make a mistake, fix it as you're playing and so on. Um, things that a lot of other drummers I know, um, or other musicians don't do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you can again, improve productivity and efficiency in your practice. If you stick to those rules. Um, for example, rule number one, you know, never play when you practice is probably the most important rule. Uh, this means that you have to dedicate separate time for playing, for being creative, for experimenting and so on. But when you're practicing, uh, it's, it's usually, or it's always working on something you need to improve, working on something new, uh, refining things, uh, tweaking things, learning new stuff. Um, and when you're practicing, there is no time for playing. This is not something um, where there is um, sort of room to experiment. Practice means really you know, like hardcore, frustrating, tedious, repetitive exercise. And, um, and it shall not be mixed with playing. A lot of people, you know, practicing is a very frustrating thing. There is never a feeling of success. Even, you know, if you've, if you've, worked on something for a few months and you finally kind of achieve uh, a higher command of playing in that particular area of your playing or, or you finally master this one particular exercise, you've been chewing on that thing for so long that it's really not like this, wow, feeling of frenzy and achievement, even after a month of working on something. So it's, it's usually very frustrating to practice and develop something new. And because most people need sort of an, an, a feeling of gratification and, and satisfaction and, and kind of um, uh, a feeling of achievement and success, they start to mix playing something they can already play into mm. their practicing routines. Make them feel better. Yeah, to make them feel better, to stroke their egos and, and, and tell themselves, well, I'm not really that terrible. You know, I can't do all this stuff that I'm working on. But I can play this cool beat that I've been playing for 15 years. And then they start playing that beat and kind of wander off mentally into playing uh, whatever the Dodger Stadium with their favorite act. And they stick around on that and, play, and noodle around for 10, 15 minutes right. before they return back to focused uh, practice and, and working on particular things, particular ideas. So... And this sort of combination and, and sort of dilution of your, uh, your practice um, regime is terrible for efficiency, for your concentration levels, you know, for focus practice and so on. So that's one thing that I've never done and I still don't do. I, when I practice, I do something, I do things very methodically, very rigorously, and I totally stick to a plan. And it's super focused and concentrated and repetitive. And then I make, I dedicate, you know, a separate amount of time for playing and for applying these ideas, for translating them onto the kit creatively and for experimenting and completely letting go of all sort of um, uh, focused type of thinking. And it's completely a sort of, you know, um, free form playing, you know, not right. practicing. All right, that was number 10 with Thomas Lang. Now let's get into number nine. 
And this is Kenny Arnoff, and this is Kenny's take on the music industry and how it is today. This is session 230, and again, Kenny Arnoff talking about the music business starting at around the 3940 mark. So let's get into it with Kenny Arnoff. The music business today, well, you the, the money that I made in the sessions and recording and even touring, from what the knowledge I have, is diminished immensely mm-hmm. immensely so you know i'm i'm living in a big you know expensive house in in uh you know the hills of studio city and after still surviving two divorces and getting scammed which i talk about in my book and we're going to talk about that because that's cr- yeah and that's crazy. Uh, you know um the thing is um and you know moving at the tempo i did thing you know there is a price to pay for all of it but the thing is what I tell people now is music is so valuable and what you learn from playing music and, you know, studying and working hard, the discipline, the hard work, the communication skills, you know, um, creating a plan and executing that plan. This is where I want to be in four years doing things like that. You learn, doesn't matter where you learn that from, but if you're doing something that you love, which is music, you'll learn it faster and you'll be willing to work harder and you will learn willing to be disciplined. Mm-hmm. And so does the value is there. If you're looking to make millions in this music business, very, very difficult. It's not the way it used to be. You can't do it as a drummer anymore unless you happen to get into a band that is going to hit the jackpot and you're going to be a member of that band where you share royalties. But I mean, listen, I played on three. I mean, you made, you made millions in the, in the music industry, but that's a different time, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I made that or I had that, um, (laughs) <laughs> I don't like to, exp- to express. Yeah, I made millions over over the. Yeah, I mean, I was shit. If you add it all up, yeah, I didn't make a million a year. That's for sure. Nothing. Right, like right, right, right. I, but if you add it all up, I made millions. Absolutely. And you know, I never was a royalty sharing member of of the Malakai band. I was just a, a member, uh, not mm-hmm. a member. I was just a uh, employee. A hired gun, right? Yeah, hired gun. Even though the, the image was, I was in the band. I've been paid big money for tours, but those days are over. And, um, have you ever like what, have you ever gotten like the call where where they tell you how much they're going to pay you and you're like holy shit that's how much they're going to pay me to go on tour hell yeah I'm going. Uh no no never went down like that it usually <laughs> was like uh, I the the first of my biggest paying tours I just said uh, either I suggested the pay or they I may have suggested I think I did it with Bob Seegers this is what I need per uh, or maybe it was they said this is what we'll pay you. And it was the most I'd ever made per week, but we only did like, when I added it up, it was a certain amount per show. Mm-hmm. So I used that as my benchmark for the Melissa Etheridge tour, Smashing Pumpkins tour, and John Fogarty tour. And so what I liked about being paid by the day, I got paid a lot of money per show. And my, 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 my brain was thinking, okay, they'll pay me when they make money. And on days off, they don't have to pay me. The other advantage was on my days off, they're mine. I own them. Yep. So I'd go off and do sessions all over the country. Mm-hmm. And that worked great for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so um, that's why when people suggest to me, well, we're going to pay you half day rate when you fly. I'm like, Kenny Aronoff works seven days a week. So if I'm flying, I can't be doing a session. Right. I said, if I don't get any work, I'll go for that. But if I get work, you're paying me what I'm missing. Mm-hmm. 
And that's usually the case. I'm working every day. Yeah, that's that's the way to do it. There's it's it's and the reason why we, you know I sort of went down the money road a little bit is because there's some there's some taboo like if this was a business podcast, right? You could like everybody openly talks about money, but there's something about the music business and the money side of it, and they're sort of like like people not necessarily want to talk about it and divulge it because it's personal income versus you know like how much a company made, but. Yeah. But it's almost like you're bad if you make money or you are trying to make more money for your thing. And it's like, this is my career. This is my job. I know. It's like, it's like the band that was really cool until uh, they made it big and then everyone hates them. I'm like, what the, f- what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, that's that? what they were trying to do. What the fuck is that? Oh, yeah. You go fucking then play in dirty, sweaty clubs your whole life until you're fucking 90 just to entertain some people and not make any money. Yeah, that happened. Well, I mean, just, I remember like Green you know, Day, like, okay, I'm not going to go on stadiums and play and make tons of money just so I can be cool. What yeah. The, what, what are they thinking? People are so stupid sometimes. That happened to the guys with Green Day. Like, they couldn't even go back to their town. I know. I heard that the Muse made it big in England. Everyone's like, oh, man, they sold out. Oh, sold really? out. How'd they sell out? Yeah, they're trying. So, they're doing what they've been trying. That's what they want to do. Well, how about this? You guys like Muse. Why can't anybody else? <laughs> That's what I don't understand. <laughs> Why can't anybody else? You mean, wouldn't you think that other people would like the same band? Right. You like? Ah, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me either. All right, now on to number eight, and this is Kenny Washington. And Kenny talks about the importance of learning slow and the the importance of consistent practice and he tells a really cool story about going upstate to play a gig with a an elder statesman who has who I think it was in his 80s and just a really good story about practice and and how it's so important why it's so important and uh just a really great story and I'm I'm glad to include this as number 8 this is session 204 with Kenny Washington this is around the 44 15 mark of session 204. Enjoy. First of all, I tell them practice slow. Because these kids are out here nowadays with cell phones and everything is fast. I seen guys mad at me. <laughs> I mean, I see some of my students, they'll run through something, they just hack through it, man. That's what I call it. Hacking away, man. You know, they hack away at a piece. You learn I mean, it, you learn it at 40 beats a minute, and then you jump it to 90 and 120, and then you're done. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, but it sounds like one of them old movies, like right. the guy's got a machete and he's like, he's in the jungles of Brazil or Africa somewhere. And he's got this machete and he's cutting through, you know, uncharted area. <laughs> That's where they're playing these drum pieces, man. They're hacking away at it, man. It sounds terrible. And I tell them, get, wait a minute, man, slow it down, you know, slow it down. Or I tell them just to just, just do one bar. One bar, you know, and they'll run through it. I said, no, man, slow it down. They slow it down. I said, that's not good enough, man. Slow it down. And then they still don't do it. I said, and then I said, okay, man, put the sticks down on the drum. Take a deep breath. And they take a deep breath. I said, okay, now let's do this slow. And they'll play the one bar and they play it correctly. I said, bingo. Mm-hmm. Now, we, it says, now you're cooking with gas. Now we have liftoff. Right, right. You know, see, the whole thing is, why do we do that? It's because of, you know, everything is fast nowadays. That's what it is. You think? Cell phones, or is it ego? 
Huh? No, it's not ego. No, some of these some of these guys they haven't gotten to the point yet and had that kind of ego. They don't play that good. They're trying to learn, but they just don't know, man. You know, they get on there. You see these kids, man, the way they're texting, they're texting a mile a minute, man. Everything is fast, man. Their, their brains is, you know, going a mile a minute. And see, so they're going to practice the same way or so-called practice the same way. They just run through stuff and it sounds terrible without paying attention. Details. So, you know, like I always, you know, practicing for me, you know, I, I try to practice every day. I mean, I'm up, I'm up like early in the morning. Well, actually, you know, like I got that, uh, I got that from Hank Jones. Hank Jones was one of the greatest pianists of all time. He was on literally hundreds and hundreds of records. You know, uh, he was the on-call studio guy in the 50s, along with great bass player by the name of Milt Hinton and the great drummer O.C. Johnson. O.C. Johnson. An unbelievable drummer. So this rhythm section, like I said, Hank Jones was the pianist. Milt Hinton, the judge, was the bassist. O.C. Johnson was the drummer. And oftentimes the guitarist would be Barry Galbraith. These guys made hundreds of records. They were doing two and three and four recording sessions per day. It's insane. And working that night. Those guys never made a bad record in their life. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. But anyway, so Hank Jones died, unfortunately died a few years ago. But he called me to make a gig with him. And, and he lived upstate New York. He lived he lived up there. He lived up past Cooperstown, you know, where the Baseball Hall of Fame is. He lived up yeah, there. Yeah, I was just there. I guess, I guess near uh, up there, near uh, or up there somewhere where I think Jack DeJanette and some of the guys, guys live. But he lived up there at that, at that at that time. And so he had this gig. So he called me and he called great bassist George Moraz. So then... Uh, you know, it takes a while to get to his house, man. It's a long way to get up there. Yeah. So the gig was like in the early afternoon. So then Hank says, he said, well, look, why don't you all come up the day before? I have plenty of room here. You can, you know, you can stay at my house that night. You know, my wife will cook dinner. I got, I got a big enough house. Everybody has their own room. Then the next morning, you know, we'll eat and and then we'll go and make the arc. So then I said, okay. So we drove up to Hank's house, you know, so we got there and, you know, uh, late afternoon, early evening, his lovely wife cooked dinner and everything. And so then about 10 o'clock, we all hit the hay. So now I always wake up early. I've always, you know, awakened early, earlier mm -hmm. than everybody else. And so I'm up at 6.30 and I'm up 6.30. And the first thing, you know, so I said, wow, man, it's like the sun is just coming up, right? And then I hear, you know, he's playing major and minor scales. He's playing, Hank, Hank is at the piano. This is what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. And that's in the living room. He's playing like, he would play like, 
He would play a C major scale and he would play a C and he would hold it for four beats and then play the D, you know. And and so then I went out, you know, I took a shower and went out, you know, and his wife was cooking breakfast and I said, oh, good morning, Mr. Jones. He's, ah, good morning, Mr. Washington. How are you? How you feeling? I'm fine, man. And so he goes on practice. I said, hey, since that, so you do this every day? And he stopped and he looked me dead in the eye. He said, Wash, it's a must. Huh. And so right then, something in my head said, ding dong, ding dong. I said, that's why. Now, at this point, he had to have been, I don't know, he must have been in his 70s then. You know, I said, that's why he still sounds good. Mm-hmm. That's why he still has that touch. That's why he's still playing his ass off. So I said, maybe if you start now, if you make it to his age, you'll still be able to play. You'll still have the sound. And from that point on, every morning, I'm up because I'm already up, man. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and that's my favorite time to be up is early in the morning. So I'm up, I'm up there practicing, man, you know, and practicing slow. That makes the difference, man, to practice slow. And I always tell my students to practice bar by bar. Number seven is Dave Desenzo. And this interview was great. I really enjoyed this. And this particular snippet, it's actually a pretty long snippet. It's, uh, it's about eight minutes long. But this is Dave talking about the concept of how most songs essentially contain the same variation or the same, they all contain the clave in one shape, way, or form, or another. So it's either the 2-3 or the 3-2 or the song clave or the rumba clave. And Dave has a great way of explaining it. He gives some examples and things like that. So a really, really great piece of information here from Dave. This is session 167, and this happens around the 36-minute and 35-second mark. Here we go. The concept essentially is look at the most common rhythmic context in the world, meaning clave, uh, one bar clave, song clave, rumba clave, six eight clave, partito alto. In my research as a student, as a songwriter, as a player, uh, especially as a sideman, I started hearing. You know, you know, you're a side man. You go into a session and you want to get to the bottom of things really fast, mm-hmm. right? Because time is, you know, money and you want to get to the bottom of, of, of each song really fast and pump it out and, you know, have people say, yeah, yeah, awesome. That was great and fast. Great. We're, we'll hire you again. And so in an effort to to be successful at doing that, I'm trying to you know, listen to a song and as quickly as possible sort of decode the rhythmic content, uh, the rhythmic uh, formulas, if you will, of the song and and have that help me get to the bottom of it very quickly. And over and over and over and over, I was hearing especially 3-2 song clave. Over hmm. and over and over. And I'm hearing it in, you know, more and more I'm recognizing it in the songs. And, you know, this is like 
you know, 20 years ago. Sure. I'm recognizing it in, in, in the music that I listen to. Um, I'm hearing one bar clave and, and, uh, and I'm, you know, at one point I said to myself, okay, so one bar clave, let's take that rhythm. For example, one bar clave is the most common rhythm in the world. In my estimation, certainly in the Western world, you hear it everywhere. Mm -hmm. One bar clave. And uh, at one point I decided to permutate that rhythm. And, and you're saying, and you're saying either way, like two, three or three, two. Yes. Yes. Okay. But more common, it, you'd hear three, two. Okay. You definitely more commonly hear three, two, but yes, you commonly hear two, three as well. You also hear rumba, but mm. you more commonly hear sewn. Um, but you definitely hear rumba and, you know, so much of the six, eight stuff that you hear. Should we, should uh, we clap the difference between, between rumba and sewn so people yeah, know? Yeah. So, so, sewn clave. Here's one bar clave. Three, four, want, at, in a bridge, up, in want, up. There's your one bar clave. Okay. Song clave right here. One, at, in, in a four. And that's three, two. One, two, three. One, two, rumba. One, two, three, four, one, two. So there's one, two, three, one, two. Okay, and then you could turn both of those rhythms around and start them with the two parts. So you got three and a four again, a song. Rumba, one. So those are the first three universal rhythms in universal rhythms for drum set. And um, the reason I, I isolate these figures is because I, he I was hearing them everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and I was using these rhythms. Like I just said in earlier in, in the conversation, you know, I would often write literally just write three, two song clave. And then I didn't have to write the groove. Cause I knew exactly what that meant. Right. You know? Right. Um, and, uh, and so it dawned on me that I should be able to interpret these figures in all conceivable ways, you know, at least conceivable by me. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, and in doing so I should, displace these figures i should permutate them so i know how to play around these figures i don't want to you know limit myself to being able to only play these figures i need to be able to play around these figures i need to be able to play with these figures because everybody's playing them no yeah. these are not just drummers playing these figures people are you know everybody's playing them people are singing them bob marley's singing it when he goes uh, three, two, no, one, two, three, four. So much trouble in the right. You hear mm -hmm. that clock? So much trouble in the world. I do, and then the band goes. You know. Can I use expletives here? You can or use no? whatever you want to use. That shit <laughs> is is um, all dancing around clave, right? Why clave? Because 
you know, it came up from Africa. Mm-hmm. Like these are the f- rhythms that were born in Africa and that all the music in Africa was based around. And it, you know, it migrates its way up to, to North America. And, 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 you know, obviously, you know, the, the, the islands before that. Mm-hmm. Man, and, I remember when like finding out that New Orleans music was based on the clave. And yeah, it just man. like head, my head just exploded. Yeah. And you know, and you know, and you know what? All freaking music is based on clave. Like, yeah. you know, you turn, you turn current pop radio on today and you hear one bar clave. You've been hearing one bar clave, you know, forever. Whether you call it that, whether you recognize it as that, your ears recognize that rhythm. And someone who is, you know, rhythmically literate knows, oh, that's one bar clave. Mm-hmm. You know? um, like a lot, so, especially like a lot of that, like early 80s rock stuff, like that pop rock stuff. I'm thinking yeah, of, uh, uh, what tune am I thinking of? Uh, well, whatever. There's. Well, in the, you know, there are thousands. Yeah. Uh, thousands, Nick. In the book, I, 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 you know, I cite like Chameleon, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, the, the, the Herbie's Herbie song, keyboard yeah. part. Uh, the whole rhythm section, Harvey's going boom, got, boom, got, got, boom, got. Totally three, two song. He's not playing the third note, but he's playing all the other ones. He's implying it rather than playing it, yeah. Yes, exactly. And he strongly imply it, implying it. Voodoo Child, Hendrix, Hendrix's guitar part is three, two. Achilles' last stand, Zeppelin. Uh, the outro riff. Totally song clave, right? <laughs> so much trouble in the world. Bob Marley, I just sang that one. Um, Black Cow by Steely Dan. You, you know, listen. If you, what I would encourage your listeners to do is start listening for it. Name it, recognize it, and say, "Oh, there it is." You know, yeah. it won't always be in the drum part. It won't always be in one part. Sometimes it will be distributed amongst different, you know, members of the different members of the band. All right. That was number seven with Dave Desenzo. Now we're on to number six with Thomas Pridgen. And this is session 148. And this is Thomas talking about taking advice from Lil John Roberts and how it helped him develop his sound and sort of how he learned how to just develop advice in general or, or take advice in general, I should say. And this is it's Thomas Pridgen. So there this may not be safe for work. So there may be some expletives in there just to warn you guys in advance. Uh, so if you're blasting this over your speaker, just want to let you know, you might want to turn it down or, or put some headphones in. But here we go. Thomas Pridgen session 148. And this starts around the 30 minute mark. Here we go. And, you know, I had all these guys and, and they were giving me they were giving me their advice. You know, I a lot of my a lot of my best advice from other people at the time sucked at the time. I was like, I want to kill this guy right. and not. You know, I remember little John. One of the things he said that I was pissed off about at the time. I don't know if I was pissed, but I was definitely distraught. And I was maybe 15, 16. 
first time he ever sees me play and he's like, yo, all that shit you played was dope, but it would be tight if you played that shit quiet. And I was like, fuck this fool. Like, in my mind, I'm right. thinking that. Right. But, you know, he was saying some real shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that was, and right now, I, I look back on it and I laugh because it's sometimes, man, like, I, I can play in a in a very dynamic way. I can play real quiet. You know, I can play real loud as fuck. You know what I mean? So it created uh, it created a sense of dynamics that I don't see in a lot of drummers right now. Mm-hmm. I see people play loud, and I see people either play. I see people play loud, and I see people play, and they just don't make the drum sound good. Right. Like you know when you when you see like you know Abe Laborio or you know Sean Pelton or Jeff Beccaro or Vinnie Caliuta and Dave Weckl, you like them a lot more playing all that shit when the drums sound better. Sure. And they drums sound good. They know how to tune the drums, and they know how to hit the drums. And so, uh, like, all this stuff that, you know, it's all helped me. It's all, like, it's all shaped me. You know what I mean? It's, like, stuff that at times I hated it, but I, I, I look back and I respect it. And I, and I feel like now, now we're at a place where it, it's different now. It's different now because if you say you don't like a drummer, then you're hating. Before we get into the top five, I want to thank our sponsors quickly, 1DW Drums, and they have been a great sponsor of this podcast for a very long time. They've been with us since 2015, and I love DW not only because they're a great family, they make great drums, and they are fostering all of these drumming initiatives all over the all over the world excuse me much like this podcast and other great initiatives be sure to thank them and be sure to check them out at dwdrums.com also i want to talk about my favorite drum shop and that is drums etc in lancaster pennsylvania and drums etc is a shop that is owned by drummers it's ran by drummers the people who work there are drummers and they know everything they everything you need to know about drumming they can find you parts they can get all of the products that we talk about in this podcast are available through drums etc the best part is you can either order online at drums etc etc drums etc.com or give them a call at 1-800-922-DRUM and they can help you through every step of the buying process. If you call them, the people who answer the phone are the people who are going to pack your order, who can answer any questions for you. Just a very great pro drum shop run by drummers for drummers. Check them out at drums, etc. drumsetc.com. I just got back from NAM and finally had a chance to get my hands on the new Rich Redmond Promark signature stick and they have active grip technology and that active grip is a really cool technology that actually gets tacky as your hand heats up so it's not going to slip out of your hand when you start to sweat and when you're under those lights on the stage and really a neat technology that nobody else is doing uh, active grips and they have that in the Mike Portnoy and they also have that in the Rich Redmond both signature models from Promark you can learn more about those models and all of the new and exciting things they have going on over there at Promark Now, let's get into number five. Number five is my man Clarence Penn. This is session 222, and he talks about self-awareness of who you are as a player, which I think is really important. We talk about how, you know, for me, I realized that I was a pocket player, and, and he talks, he gives a great example of Ricky Lawson, how he switched into the pop world, and 
just the self-awareness of realizing that you're this guy or that guy is something that I think is extremely important and an extremely valuable lesson from a great player. Again, this is session 222 with Clarence Penn, and it starts around the 58.30 mark. Here we go. Ricky Lawson, who I think, uh, you know, I'm from Detroit. Right. I don't know if they, they know who Ricky Lawson was, but Ricky had well, they should. all of the top, you know, Michael Jackson, Lionel Richie. I mean, I know Ricky was making obscene amounts of money. Right. Uh, and not to say that that's in the most important thing, but it is important to be able to take care of your family mm-hmm. and have a certain, uh, uh, you know, certain lifestyle that that's comfortable for you. Right. And, and Ricky was not Mr. Chop flying around the drum set or whatever, but his phone rang all the time because he's, he, he figured at one point, man, I'm a, I'm a pocket guy. This is what I do. And this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do it you know? really I'm like, well. I'm not, yeah. And I'm going to do it really well. I mean, I saw Ricky play in 1985 with the Yellow Jackets. He was still with the Yellow Jackets then. This is before he, he said, I'm going to make the the, uh, the jump over to the pop world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he had, he had some chops. He was playing some stuff. I was like, right. whoa. And, and but then when he got to the pop world, there was no room for, for that, you know? Mm-hmm. And 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 he he understood what what the music needed, and and because he did that, man, he worked all the time. I mean, you know, I don't know if there was ever a day that he didn't have a, a, a amazing tour yeah. or a gig, you know. So um, you know, you don't necessarily uh, you know have to feel bad when once you understand what type of player you are. When you do understand the type of player you are, then you work on that. You know, right. work right. on work on that, you know, but just don't be that type of player um, because you're settling just because you're too lazy to, uh, you know, oh, I don't want to work on chops because uh, it's boring or whatever. Right. I mean, you know, there's there's certain there's work that we have to do just that just goes along with being in the brotherhood of, of drummers. Right. You know, any musician, but we're talking about drummers, you know, so we, we do work on our, our paradiddles, work on our, all our rudiments and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But then at the end of the day, the thing that makes that where you feel at home, if it's playing pocket, then that's great. All right. Number four is with my man, Mike Johnston. And this is session 154. And Mike talks about being able to make a career in music and not having to live in, you know, Philadelphia or Los Angeles or Miami or anywhere. So it's sort of the idea that not sort of the idea. It is the idea that you can make a career in music and you don't have to be in a major city to do so, depending on what you want to do with your career. So re- some really some really great insight from Mike, who runs Mike'sLessons.com from Sacramento, California. But he we talk about it in this that he could be in Hawaii or anywhere in the world. It doesn't really matter because of the advent of the internet and, and the power behind that. So again, session 154 with Mike Johnston, and this starts at the 2745 mark. Let's get into it. But the most important thing is also what Nick said earlier, which is you don't need to move to Nashville to do this. You don't need to move to LA. Uh, you don't need to be in New York. I'm Nick, where, where do you live, by the way? Are you in Philly? <laughs> I'm in New York. <laughs> Oh, you are in New York. Such a, a bad, such a bad example. I'm actually, I'm in Hoboken. So I'm in, I don't know. Okay. 
I don't know how familiar well, you you're are with Well, you're podcasting this. out of Hoboken. You're not, you know, yeah, you're not there yeah. specifically to become a touring drummer or, or to get a it deal. It just so happens I mean, that I'm here. I met a girl who lived up right. here and I moved up here. So I, but my, actually most, I mean, my career, uh, I was, I, ever since I moved up here, I mean, I ran out of Philly. So like I toured out of Philly and did everything out of there. So, and Philly's not like a huge music scene. It used to be 30 years ago, but I was, right. you know, I was four. So um, I wasn't really. And it's, I mean, it's that. always had a, a massive R and B scene, but yeah. um, but I but I think you know I always looked at the band Slipknot as my example of like, dude, they got a record deal out of Iowa. It's you know you can do it anywhere. So right, right. the most important thing right now is the fact that we're all connected um, through the internet. We're all connected through social media, so it doesn't really matter. No one's ever asked me like, hey, I watched your online lesson today. Where was that filmed? No one's ever asked that. They right. would just mm-hmm. so it's and and my wife and I have literally talked about. Hey, since all we have to do is move our backdrop with us, you know, my symbols mounted on the wall. Couldn't we do this from Hawaii? Like, why do we have to live anywhere? Like we could we could be anywhere because all of our students are virtual. They don't know where I am. So 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 we're in a very good time where you don't have to live in a specific city to make it. If you want to be a gigging musician, you obviously need to live in a town that has an active music scene. That definitely helps. But the more active the scene is, the more competitive that scene is. So the most active scene in the world is, you know, is New York, is Manhattan. But you also are dealing with Keith Carlock and Mark Juliana and J.P. Bouvet that want your gigs. So right. you better bring the heat. Yeah. So. All right, we're getting down there. This is number three with David Garibaldi. And a quick note about David Garibaldi. He was in a quite a, a horrific accident when they were playing at a gig uh, in Oakland at Yoshi's and he is okay. I've, I've spoken with him, emailed back and forth. He is recovering and he and the bass player from Tower of Power, Mark, were both hit by a train, an Amtrak train, a very scary situation. They're both going to recover, uh, thankfully, but just keep those guys in your thoughts as you're, you know, as you're listening to this and as you're going throughout your day. And David has been such a, a great dude for being on the podcast. And he and I have kept in touch since. And I'm very relieved to know that he's going to make a recovery. So here is some great information from Dave. And this is talking about developing your own sound, which David has done as being one of those founding guys and one of the seminal players in that whole Oakland funk scene. And so if there's anyone who can talk about developing your own sound, it's definitely David Garibaldi. So again, this is session 169 and it starts at the 1550 mark. Here we go with David Garibaldi. I think you have to be yourself. I mean, always. I mean, that's the, I always wanted to, be myself. I didn't want to copy anybody else, although that's what you have to do when you're learning language. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know, drumming and music, uh, you can look at musical styles as, you know, language or dialects of language. Mm-hmm. Right. And so to be conversational, you have to do it a lot. You have to experiment. You have to use the vocabulary. And so just like people's individual use of language, the language that they speak, they, adapt or or I should say develop an individual use of language, colorful language, the way that people use words and things by using it, by interaction with people. It's the same thing with music. Your interaction with other musicians develops your ability to be conversant. And mm-hmm. so your ability to be conversant sort of shapes 
your personality. So, sure. you know, your, your expression of yourself, your musical ideas, it's the same as language. When you discuss things and you have ideas about things, you have opinions about things, mm-hmm. you know, use your language to express that. Well, it's music is the same way, your vocabulary. So you have to get in the practice room. You got to learn some things to play. You got to go through this future sounds. You got to go through John Riley's books. You got to go through stick control. You got to go through all this material to sort of develop some ideas to play. And then you take those things that you're learning and you shape those and play music Mm -hmm. and let the music that you play dictate how you use your vocabulary Mm -hmm. so all the stuff that you're learning is just the just the vehicle to get you exactly where you need to go exactly so everyone has a unique way that they view their life a unique way that they view the music a unique way that they view the things that they do a unique way that they view their interactions with others everyone has that And so what that takes is you kind of like dropping all of the influences that you have and say, okay, what am I about? What am I going to do here? Right. And then start, begin. (laughs) It sounds simple. (laughs) Well, but it's not. It's a project. You know, it's a life. It's a life path, you know, Mm -hmm. and being yourself musically is very difficult because people get scared, you know. There's work considerations. There's all these other things, you know. Well, it's it's art. It's nothing more, nothing less. If you have the, you know, I've had the good fortune to um, make a living playing music mm-hmm. my whole, all my adult life, you know. Right. I've, I've made money playing music, but I was never scared to do it. I was never afraid to do it. I knew that I was going to be okay. I just knew it. I wasn't afraid. I stepped out there, and every decision that I've made in my life was to support my vision for myself my family understands it i have a great family life um you know and i just stay on this path that i'm on all right number two is with my man steve gad this is session 203 and Steve talks about serving the song and his approach, whether he's you know working with an artist on tour or he's working in the studio. And if there's one thing that Steve, Steve Gadd does a lot of things very, very well. But if there's one thing that he does really well, it is serve the song and serve the artist. So he talks about his approach to that. Great information from the one and only Steve Gadd. This is session 203, and it starts at 3526. You're Steve Gadd. Well, I mean, my approach is to uh, keep the music, you know, the priority. Um, and it's uh, for me, it's important to not talk about anything until I've heard either the artist play the song, sing it while he plays guitar or piano, or plays a demo of it. That's real important for me to be able to hear the thing before anyone says anything. And if there's a lead sheet or any kind of music, look at the music while you listen to the the thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So you get some kind of idea of 
the form of the song and how how what you heard applies to where you are on the page. You know, if it's a close, if it's closer, if it's a completely different, you know, different arrangement. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't, you, you have to not talk about it until you've heard it, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I think it's even good after you've heard it to maybe play it a little bit before you talk about it. Because then you, you then you've, you've, you've had a chance to allow the music to bring something out of you that nobody said anything about. And it could be, it could be what they're looking for that they, but something that they couldn't put into words. So do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Try to try to keep the communication line open and uncluttered. Right. And, uh, and so then after you've played it and then maybe you could, the guy could say, well, you know what? This letter one section was really good, but uh, the other section it was a little bit too busy, a little too loud, but at least you know what you're talking about. You know what I mean? Right. You've got like, uh, you've got it. And, and you could even play it a couple of times before you start talking about it to see what, to see what, it, how, what the music brings out of the people naturally you mm-hmm. know what i mean to see if it just sort of and you know what if the if the guy's a good producer and and the artist isn't real inexperienced they might allow it to go that way mm-hmm. uh even though it's different from what they had envisioned you know what i mean right but other times they might not the other times they might say oh no you know what before you know before we start doing that i want to do i don't want to do you know so it's yeah, it's a process, you know, and it's a it's constantly coming up with different agreements along the way, right. based on what everyone, you know, uh, based on how to make the music, what the what the artist and the producer want, you know. Right. All right, now we are here. Number one is Dennis Chambers, session two twenty eight. And Dennis talks about using everyone as an influence and then taking all of those influences and creating your own thing out of that. So it's the idea of not copying people verbatim, but using them as inspiration, using them as an influence to craft your sound. And Dennis Chambers has definitely personified that. And again, session 228, the one and only Dennis Chambers, and this starts at 3353. Enjoy. Well, you know, I mean, you know, like I, I you know, like I, I like, uh, let me see, I love uh, Tony Williams. Well, I love everything about Tony Williams. The ride, the the whole concept of the four and the four and the hi hat, the uh, uh, the snare drum, where he placed the the beats, how he feathers the bass drum. Then you got Billy Cobham. You know, the power, the speed, the rawness, mm-hmm. the the flash. You know. I mean, just coming at you, just taking your head off with the drums. I right. love that. Then you got, you know, Steve Gadd, the finesse, the the uh, the the play something like simple and could be the hardest thing you ever, ever played in your life. You know, <laughs> um, I love that. You know, David Gabaldi with the syncopation. I love that. You know, the folks syncopation. You know, 
Mm-hmm. Clyde Stubblefield, you know, I mean, it's like you take all these elements, you know, and then you work these things out, you know, not all at the same time. Right. But over the years, you know, like, you know, like learning some things, you know, you go like, you know, if you're in a rut, you go like, hey, what? I wonder what Melvin would have done right here. Mm-hmm. Melvin Parker. Or I wonder what Clyde would have done right here. Right. And then you play it. But then all of a sudden, while you're doing it, you go like, then all of a sudden you start hearing other things because your mind is open, you know, for um, for your heart to come in and go like, well, you know, if I were to do this, I would do it. I would have. I would just do it this way. Mm-hmm. And by doing it that way, you're building up a vocabulary of rhythms, right? A right. vocabulary of of uh, feel and emotions. Mm-hmm. Not just shutting off your emotions, shutting off your feel, and go like. Well, I'm just going to play it just the way Steve Gadd did it. Well, that's what I and that was why I asked because I I hear this in in players. So, and I'm trust me, I'm guilty. I'm as guilty as anyone. So, who am I to kid? But but I see like somebody grooving, and they're saying, "Okay, this I'm playing my Steve Gadd groove, and then I'm going to do my Dennis Chambers fill, and then I'm going to go back to my Steve Gadd groove, and then I'm going to do my David Garibaldi fill, and then I'm going to go back to my Steve Gadd groove." So it's not it's not all fused together of like, Ooh, was that, that kind of like that had this little hint of, of Steve or Dennis or Tony or somebody, you know, and yeah. I it, like, it almost seems like this uh, and not everybody, but, and, and, and that's why I'm asking, or that's why I asked the question, because I'm sure that there's people out there that are listening that love your playing, love Jack DeJanet's playing, love Steve's playing. And they want to know, okay, how can I take all the stuff that I'm learning and not just sound like, you know, uh, just like a, well, you take, just take all these things that you you listen to and you're learning, and then you put it, you you, you put yourself in a position to like, okay, w- once you learn that lick, or once you learn that phrase, or once you learn that feel, then you put yourself in a position to go like, what would I do if if I was the one that was coming up with this? How would I approach this? Mm-hmm. How the key word is how would I? Yep. Meaning it's like, how would I feel? How would I do? How do I hear? Mm-hmm. And that's the beginning of developing. Yeah, what, and that's that's how Steve Gann, every all your all your great drummers, drummers, that's what they did. So there you have it, recapping the top 10 interviews of 2016. I hope that you enjoyed those interviews. I hope you, you enjoyed those nuggets that I pulled out for you. And if you want to listen to any of those in their entirety, you can just go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 241, and it has the entire list there, or you can just listen to it on iTunes, Stitcher, you know, anywhere on the website. If you want to, you can download them, you can take them on the go, all of that stuff. And again, I ask that if you get value from this podcast, please do me a favor and please pledge your support at drummersresource.com forward slash support. And again, Support starts at a dollar a month, so you can pay a dollar a month or two dollars a month or five or ten and as high as you would like to go, but every bit helps. So if you can swing a dollar or two or three and you think that that's not going to do any good, you're wrong. Every little bit helps. It helps pay for staff. It helps pay for hosting. It helps pay for new equipment and all of those things. Again, drummersresource.com forward slash support. I hope that you enjoyed this session, and I can't wait to come back again on Friday with another one. In the meantime, keep drumming. 
Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.